Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 24. And as you do, it won't take you long to realize, okay, things have changed a little bit. We're switching gears. We're no longer kind of walking through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and just on into 10, because after chapter nine, things change with Proverbs. It starts going into kind of more the proverbial sayings as we are familiar with and accustomed with throughout the Proverbs. So what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks is we're going to take some key thematic kind of themes that are playing out throughout Proverbs, and we're going to approach those through a topical exposition kind of format. What what I mean by that is we're going to still take the text as it is, and we want to expose the meaning of the passage for us to be able to understand. We want to take and make sure that the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. So we're going to remain in Proverbs, but we're going to be looking at much shorter um, kind of quips that are coming through, much shorter proverbial sayings here um, as we do so. So for example, today we're going to look at primarily two verses as our main text. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you're probably sitting there like, what? Jeremy's only going to preach from two verses today? And you're maybe like wondering, like, is Jeremy sick? Um, like only two verses from here? Um, and some of you are saying, well, maybe this will mean it'll be a shorter sermon <laughs> if it's only two verses. And if, if you're hoping for a, a shorter sermon like my, my son or um, in that case, or if you're wondering if I'm sick, I'll tell you, I, I'm not sick. And if you are hoping for the, the shorter sermon, I, I would tell you don't hold your breath um, on, on that. But let's, let's pick up in Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 3. By wisdom my house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now notice the focus of these two verses. Here we're told that by wisdom, by understanding, by knowledge, a house is built, established, and filled with all these pleasant riches. Now here's the question. This promised wealth, these pleasant riches that we see spoken of here in this text that are filling this, this house with abundance, we have to ask, is it literal or is it metaphorical? Like what, what is being spoken of here? Like literal riches and wealth or, or metaphorical riches and wealth? And, and I, can't, I tend to look at this along with a lot of those who I was reading in conjunction with this to think that it's a little bit of both. But to gain a contextual picture, why I think it's a little bit of both, look back with me one page to Proverbs chapter 23. So just kind of flip back one page, Proverbs chapter 23, look in verse 4 where it says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. It's a pretty straightforward text. Do not toil to acquire wealth. This is one of those passages when you read it, you look and say, huh, I really wonder what this means. He says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Why? Because it's here one moment and it's gone the next. It's not going to last. So in other words, don't make it the pursuit of your life to pursue the worldly riches of this, of this world. Don't, don't make that the aim, the focus of, of your life. And we need to keep that in mind, that understanding in mind, when we approach Proverbs chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. 
We also need to keep in mind the context and the theme of the overall book that that we've been looking at. And in doing so, we're going to find that our passage today is, is metaphorical. And then begins the question again, well, metaphorical for what? What is it a metaphor for? And I believe here where the, the overall context tells us the riches of, which are true riches, which is the literal side of it, the, the riches that are here are spoken of are, are the secure and stable confines of a biblical home, of a wise and faithful family in line with the word of God. Remember, the entire book stems from the context of family. From start to finish, it's in the context of family, a father imparting wisdom upon his son, imploring him and and teaching him to live and to walk according to wisdom. We've seen the emphasis on the mother's role as well, with the son being instructed by the father to not forsake his mother's teaching. Listen, understand what mom and dad are telling you here. We're trying to raise you up in in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We're trying to to teach you the way to walk in wisdom so that you're not going to deter and go down the wrong path. This entire book is focused on telling us how to faithfully follow after Christ. But in that, it's also saying, okay, here's how you build a faithful family. It's for you individually, but it's for your family corporately, and it's for the world as a whole. This is how you do this. And this is what we're going to be focused on over this week and next week. So this is going to be a two-part message. You can just say that's how it's a shorter message. I'm going to divide it into two. It could just go all once right now, but then we would be here the length of two sermons uh, for that. So we're going to just go with one and then part two next week. And we're going to be focusing on God's design for building a healthy family. So yes, these messages are going to be in large part focused on on roles and responsibilities of mom and, and dad here in this. We're going to be talking about the responsibility of children as well. But now, if you're a single here today, or you're, you're a young person, or you're in a spot where you're just like, that's not describing where you're at in life right now, I assure you this message and the next message very much apply, whether it's in how you're going to be thinking about family or thinking about parenting in the future, or how you are just being a part of the, the church structure as a whole, as the church family how you advise and think and counsel others. All of this applies to each and every one of us, young or old, in every phase of life. It's understanding God's design for the family. So point number one, by wisdom a family is built. By wisdom a family is built. Look at, with me at verse three again. By wisdom a house is built. It's not talking about just the the physical house of, okay, you come along and here's some hammer and nails. Though foundational premises and purposes are important. What we see here with by by wisdom a house is built is reminiscent of the language that we looked at in chapter 8. Verses 22 through 31. When the Lord established the heavens, wisdom was there. We've talked about this understanding of, of wisdom. In all of creation, wisdom was there, present and active. And throughout our series, we've learned what about wisdom? Wisdom is what? It, it's a person. And wisdom, who, who is that person? Church, who is that person? It's Jesus, Sunday school answer time. Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the answer. Jesus is wisdom personified. As we looked in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He, he being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. All things would incorporate the family. 
all things, including the family. By wisdom, a house is built. By wisdom, a family is built. And don't forget that Jesus is the one who holds all things together, isn't he? By the, by the word of his power, he holds all things together. All things, again, would be the family. It's Christ in designing, sustaining the family, is the one who does, sustains the family, pres- preserves the family, carries the family. And a biblically constructed family starts with marriage. So that's where we start. It starts with marriage. The, the family starts with marriage. Number two, it goes all the way back to, to Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In the beginning, God created man for woman and woman for man. Now, sin has distorted this in all types of ways, all kinds of ways. We we don't have time, and we're not going to try to break down all the intricacies of that. But what we need to understand is God's design is still God's design. No matter how culture changes and shifts and redefines, God's design is still God's design. Marriage is the work, the construct of of wisdom. And it's the confines of marriage that husbands and wives leave their parents, cleave to, to one another, become one flesh, and are given a job description. You know what the job description is? Be fruitful and multiply. That's what we see going all the way back to Genesis. Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. Again, we see these, the sad, devastating effects of sin. Because this too has been devastatingly corrupted by sin. Sin brings pain and difficulty where sin, where pain and difficulty were never meant to exist. Again, that's not the focus of our aim here. But we can see the effects, we can feel the effects all, all around us. Whether it's ranging from infertility to, to miscarriages to, to, the, to the like, these are things that should not be there. But God's design, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, does not change. God designed for the family to consist of children. To, to raise up the children. The number of which will naturally look different from, from family to family. But husbands and wife come together in marriage, have children, whether that's biological or through adoption. And God, God we thank God for those, those gifts. And then we raise those children up to walk in wisdom, teaching them the ways of Christ, the things of Christ, the ways of the Lord. Over and over again throughout scripture, we, we see emphasis placed on the importance of raising up and teaching our children the way that they should go. The responsibilities of the parents. High emphasis being placed on, on us as fathers, but high emphasis placed on both fathers and mothers throughout the text. Flip over with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, if you haven't been here in, in recent weeks, maybe you haven't heard me kind of emphasize just the importance of, of bringing your Bibles with you if, you. if you can, you can have them on a screen, but obviously those can bring some distractions when you get a text message or a notification. But there's something about having the, the, the text in front of you and be able to flip through and open and see exactly what is there before us. You know, this is God's word to us. But in Deuteronomy chapter six, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter six, Verse four, hear, O Israel. He's talking about all of Israel. Hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. But not, it doesn't stay there, does it? Look at verse 7. It comes from the heart, but then what do you do? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your, your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Over and over again, we see throughout the text, husband and wife, mom and dad are being told to, to teach their children the ways of the Lord, how to walk in wisdom. What's interesting about this passage in particular is that this is the nation of Israel before they have gone into the promised land. Before that they have entered into the land and God's telling them, okay, this is how you need to, to, to raise your family. Because if you want to have a healthy nation, it's got to be comprised of healthy families, biblically constructed, God-fearing families. And guess what, mom and dad? It is your responsibility to raise up and to teach your children these things. But what do we see if we just continue to read through the Old Testament? It didn't take but a generation for this to be forgotten. And then what do we see? We see that when this is not taught and is not practiced, then it doesn't take long to lose an entire generation. And then it's gone completely. We see that in the book of Judges. It's a spiral and spiral into depravity. And what I want us to see in, in our text today and, and throughout the scripture is how the family is an institution that is created by God. It is built by God. And as a creation, God, God has designed it. God is the one who is operating it and creating it to work in a specific way. He's designed for it to work in a specific way. So marriage first. Leave parents and cleave to one another. Then in the confines of marriage, become one flesh. And then have children and then we raise and we teach those children how to, to know wisdom, to walk in wisdom, to know how to stay on the path of righteousness. And then what do those children, Lord willing, become? Adults. And then what are they doing? The exact same thing. That, that, that's the plan for, for them then to, to, to marry, then to, for them to, to have children, for them to raise and to teach those, those children. Again, this is the, the broader sense. Yes, there's going to be calls to singleness, and yes, there'll be others, but this is what we see largely throughout, throughout culture and throughout Scripture. We see this over and over again. It's the plan, very simple. Marry, have children, raise those children up in the way they should go, teach them the ways of the Word, repeat generation after generation. And so since all of this starts with marriage, that's where we're going to start and kind of focusing in at the start of today, focusing on the, the married couple. Now, before we get into to the specifics there or some kind of advice for, for maintaining and, and helping and leading a, a healthy marriage, let's kind of back up before the I do's for a moment. 
Let's say that you're single today or you're advising somebody who is looking to, to be married one day and the question comes along and says, how do I know if this person that I'm dating is the one? Like I, have, I would have shared this with you before, um, but if, if we have had college students over the years that would come up and like, Jeremy, how do you know Leslie is the one? Like, what if there were like, meaning like, what has there been another one? Like, how do you know Leslie's the one? I'm like, you want to know? You really want to know how I know she's the one? Because I'm married to her. I, I, I'm married to her. No, like, well, no, but how did you know before that that she was the one? Like, okay, let me just turn this back to you for a moment. Is this person that you're interested in, is, is he or she, are they a, a biologically of the opposite sex of you? Yes. Okay, now, is that person a, a like-minded believer? Like, not only just saying, I, I believe in Jesus, but do they love the Lord? And do you have this, the main things in common that you would actually, if you have children with this person, that you'll be raising them up in the same way and teaching them the same thing? Yeah, I, I, I believe so, okay. Do the wise people, Christians around in your life, do they believe and affirm that this person would be good for you in your life? Yes, they do. All right, I'm not seeing any problems here. Right. Can you like afford to be married? Well, I don't, I'm not talking about living in your parents' house. <laughs> I'm talking about having a roof over your head and eating beanie weenies and ramen noodles and living on love if you need to. Like, can, can you afford that, right? Yes, we can afford that. Okay, are you attracted to them? Yes. Then what are you waiting for? Put a ring on it, right? Like, I, I, like, I, I don't put a ring on it, get married. But that's not the end of the story, is it? It's not the end of the story. We have to work to keep the love alive. We have to work to keep the love alive. That's why we, we've seen a focus throughout those first nine chapters of Proverbs on the importance of intimacy, the importance of love, the importance of faithfulness. So the, the part here, work to keep the love alive. And I say work because it takes work. And the longer we're married, we learn this. We understand this. Maintaining and fanning the flames of emotional and sexual intimacy takes work. Tell this to a newlywed or somebody who's looking to get married and thinking, like, what is he talking about? They're like, like, they're like looking at you like a deer in the headlights. Like, I have no concept of what he's talking about here. How do you have to work on intimacy? Like, what? But does doesn't make sense then, but it will. The longer they're married, it, it will. One day that newlywed is going to look at his or her spouse and they're going to think, if they're wise, they will not say it, but they will think, you are not the person that I married. <laughs> and you react that way because we've all thought that. <laughs> we've thought that. And you know the, tr the answer is, it's true. You're, you're not, they're not the person that you married but neither are you the person that they married. You're not the same person. None of us are the same person we were five years ago. We're not the same person we were 10 years ago, much 25, 50 years ago. You know, over the, the life of a 50 year marriage, I think studies will say, depending on what study it is, but you're gonna be married to like sometime of seven different people. Not seven different individuals, but the same person who just continues to change. 
You're you're constantly having to get to know one another and work and and to learn and to figure things out because you're both constantly changing. That's why it's imperative for couples to continue to fan the flames of emotional and sexual intimacy within their marriage. That's why Proverbs tells us to enjoy the wife of our youth. Yeah, he's talking to his young son. But it's also for his young son to remember 75 years from now to enjoy the wife of your youth. And that takes work. Allow your marriage to drift and you will drift apart. It takes intentionality and commitment to keep love alive. So yeah, make time for date nights. Date nights are important, but it's more than that. It's being intentional and and listening and communicating and spending time together in the everyday course of life. If you find that your life is too busy for quality time with one another throughout the week, as husband and wife, then your life is too busy. Your life is too busy. There's nothing wrong with working. You need to work. You don't work, you don't eat. You don't work, you don't put food on the table, you don't put a roof over your head, you don't do those things. You have to be able to to work. Nothing wrong with kids being involved in extracurricular activities. That's a good thing. It's a fun thing. They need to. It's teaching. But what your spouse needs, this goes for both husbands and wives. I'm not focusing on one or the other. I'm focusing on both. What your spouse needs and what your children need more than stuff and more than sports and more than all of this world has to offer is you. They need you. They need mom and dad together. You. You can give your family all the stuff that this world has to offer. All the opportunities in the world. Every single one of them. But what's the worth of, what's it worth if it leads to a broken marriage or a hollowed out marriage? What's it worth? You destroy the marriage, you destroy the family. Destroy the marriage, you destroy the family. And in the process, you're teaching children, you're teaching your children, whether you want to or not, what you believe is most important. What our children need to see and to know is that mom and dad love each other. And not just from words that are exchanged, but they need to see that mom and dad love each other. Enjoy being with each other. Now, obviously, there there are appropriate boundaries there uh, for what children need to see. But it is appropriate and healthy for them to see public displays of affection within the home. For them to be able to have those moments where they go, ew, gross, like don't do that. And then they say that and react that way. Again, appropriate displays of public affection. But what that's teaching our children is showing our children without a word coming out of our mouth. Mom and dad love each other. They're committed to each other. They enjoy being with each other. It's setting an example there for the foundation of a, of a home. So homework assignment for all of those of you who are married, go home and make your children say, ooh, gross today. <laughs> Additionally, we must remain faithful to one another. Again, we've seen this emphasized throughout the first nine chapters over and over and over again, the faithfulness that is needed in marriage. We have to remember that love is a choice. Yes, there are emotions involved. Yes, there's warm fuzzies that can and will exist. But we, those, as we change those feelings, those emotions change. The thrill of being newlyweds won't always exist. It won't. 
But like a fine wine, love gets better with age if it's cared for and treated properly. So this is where we have to remember that love is a choice. Love is a choice. I've heard one pastor say it once, and it was Vody Bauckham. He said, it's, love is, is, is a choice. It's not something that we fall into. Anything that we can fall into, we can climb out of. It's true. It's a choice. It's a choice that we make every single day that I'm choosing to love you for better or for worse in sickness and health until death do us, up, do us part. I choose to continue to love you. And let's be honest, some days it's harder than others. Now, I wouldn't know this. That's what Leslie tells me. But even on those difficult days, even when, when there are seasons of difficulty in marriage, there will be. There will be seasons of difficulty in marriage. Even when the, the emotional and sexual intimacy isn't where we would like it to be, Proverbs is telling us over and over to remain faithful to our spouse. Remain faithful to your spouse. To be satisfied in and enjoy the wife of your youth. To be jealous for her. To be jealous for one another. Nothing can be allowed to come in to break or to harm the covenant between husband and wife. Can't let that happen. Don't let woman folly seduce you into committing adultery. Do not let it happen, whether it's physical, whether it's visual, whether it's emotional. Don't let that happen. Remain faithful to your spouse. Work to make your marriage strong. And if you need help, if you're struggling, I want to tell you, you're not alone. It's okay to ask for help. Please ask for help. Reach out and ask for help. And here's the bigger reason why. Because it's not just about you individually. Throughout the Old Testament, marriage is used to describe God's relationship to the church with his people. We see that the marriage language continued throughout the New Testament. Jesus being identified as the groom and the church being identified as his bride. Marriage serving as a powerful illustration of Christ's relationship with the church. So yes, breaking a marital covenant with our spouse is a terrible thing. But as terrible as it is, it points to an even greater transgression of unfaithfulness in our relationship with God. If our relationship with our spouse isn't right and isn't healthy, neither is our relationship with God. So right now, if there's fractures in your relationship, there's also fracture in your relationship with God. And we want both to be right for our sake and for the sake of our children. We want them both to be right. See, our, our faithfulness in marriage is serving as a powerful gospel presentation to the children in our home. Powerful gospel presentation to the children in our home. And this is foundational to building a, a healthy family. Because our children, they know mommy and daddy don't have it all together. They know. <laughs> they know that mommy and daddy don't always walk in wisdom. We can put up a front for Facebook to see, and we can put up a front for everyone and even in this room to see. We all know the truth. None of us have it all together. <laughs> That's what we're communicating to the watching world. Hey, I've got it all together. <laughs> Our family's great. But... Our children know better. Our children know 
that two sinners said, I do, and two sinners don't have it all together. So when we, mom or dad, when we offend one another, we sin against one another, what gets to happen? In a gospel, wisdom-built home, they get to see repentance and reconciliation in action. They get to see the gospel on physical display in action. You get to see that dad or mom screwed up. Let's go with dad for a moment. It's Father's Day. We'll just pick on dad. Dad screwed up. It'll happen. But just because dad screwed up, it doesn't end mommy's love for dad. Kids get to see this. Children see, okay, mom's not happy. Mom may be hurt. Mom may be angry. It's similar to what we see how, how sin angers and hurts God. But they also see how mom's love in that anger, in that hurt, is also extended even greater to dad. They see that mom is making a choice not to go anywhere. What they're seeing is the gospel on display. That, that God's love is extended to us even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's teaching our children that stability and security looks like biblically. Not, not just in, in marriage, but in our relationship with Christ. We're all going to sin. We don't become Christians and stop sinning. No, we, we continue. Yes, we'll have moments of sin, but when we sin, Jesus never breaks his covenant with us. He never says, I'm going to stop loving you. He chose to love you before the foundations of the world were laid and he continues to love you to this day. Continues. He never quits loving you. Oh, what a powerful demonstration a faithful marriage teaches our children. Number three, model what it means to fear the Lord. Model what it means to fear the Lord. And while everything else we've looked at is important, this is the most important. Because our children need to know, see, and understand that mom and dad do fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. See, unbelievers can have good marriages. Unbelievers can remain faithful to one another. There's nothing distinctly Christian about either of those. But unbelievers do not fear the Lord. They do not. Now, if you're wondering, okay, how is he pulling fear from the Lord from this passage? I don't see that in this text. Look at verses 3 and 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. It tells us, by wisdom, by understanding, and by knowledge, a house is built, established, and filled. Built, established, and filled. How? By wisdom, by understanding, by knowledge. And what we've been told throughout Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, chapter 9, verse 10. We've seen throughout those first nine chapters and throughout the rest of Proverbs a focus on the fear of the Lord. That is the source of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. So you're going to build a home, you're going to build it on those things. You're going to build it on the wisdom of God. And that's why we keep coming back to the fear of the Lord. If we're going to walk in wisdom, we're going to follow Christ, it's essential that we fear the Lord. And I keep coming back and defining what this is because by the very nature, when we say the word fear, it can be misunderstood and taken in so many different directions. Because there's two types of fear. 
Two types of fear. The, the one most commonly thought of stems from our desire to, desire to control the world around us. It's a fear of losing what's most important to us in, in our minds. And if we're honest there, it can be a fear of losing the idols in our life. Losing the things that we have made idols, whether that, that's our, our, our job, our, our family, our reputation, our health, our life, whatever that may be. These are our fears that we have. And that fear can lead us to try to hide from our fears. I mean, I remember coming back to the house, getting a phone call one day at the house. I was at work and Leslie calls. It wasn't at this house, but another house. And she's screaming on the phone, there's a mouse, there's a mouse, there's a mouse. And I get home and she's like literally standing like on the chair in the kitchen because the mouse is in the house. I'm like, it's that, it's that small. <laughs> like, it's that little bitty thing. And what, she's hiding from the mouse. You laugh and some of you are like, I would do the same thing. <laughs> Came home one day and there was a six-foot snake outside the door. This is where we're down in Florida. I understood that one just a little bit better. Um, but it's curled up outside and she wasn't coming out. She's hiding from her fear. I'm not going to go near that. And that's what some of us do. There's fears in our life and we just want to hide from them. Or we may respond by trying to control every detail of our life. We try to control everything in an attempt to, to hold tight to what matters most to us. We want to hold tight to, to, those, to those idols in our life. I don't want to lose this. I want to control this. When I do this, then everything's going to be okay. This type of fear makes giants out of what we fear. It makes giants out of what we fear. Giants so big, we think God can't beat them. But he can. He can. And when it comes to this type of fear, God says, do not fear. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He will do these things. That's not biblical fear. But there's another kind of fear that is good and that is needed. It's the fear that brings wisdom. It's the fear that brings understanding and knowledge and joy and rest and life everlasting. It's a holy fear. It's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 26. It says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And for their children, it will be a refuge. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who, who has it rests satisfied. This type of fear is being like Moses. And removing your shoes because you know that you're standing on holy ground. This type of fear is being like the disciples. Who, who feared for their life in the middle of the storm. Remember back in Mark? A storm was raging. Jesus on the boat and what's he doing? He's sound asleep. <laughs> and and they're, they're, they're scared. They're fearful. They're fearful, number one, fear, right? And then what does Jesus do? Peace, be still. And the waves stop, the storm stops, and they just stand in awe. They stand in awe. And then we're told from the word, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Awe-inspiring fear. Who is this? This is not just a man. We're standing, we're sitting in a boat. Who is this? It's an awe, it's a reverence. 
This type of fear is grasping the wonder of the gospel. Grasping the wonder of the gospel that a holy and righteous God would take on flesh and become sin to rescue his children from sin and death. You, me, he would love us enough to knowing who we would be and how we would fall from the foundations of the world onward to love us enough to pursue us as his bride would love us to send his son to die for us. It's an awe. This is the type of fear that we must embrace. An awe and a reverence that is inspired by love for the God of the Bible. That characterizes our marriages, that characterizes our home, characterizes our personal life. And when we possess this type of fear of the Lord and our children know that we possess this type of fear, it changes everything. Either, either way, we're teaching our children through our actions. We're constantly teaching. One way or another, we're, we're either teaching them to fear that God isn't big enough we don't want to teach that. We want to teach that he is big enough. That he is sovereign enough. That he is good enough. That he can and does hold all things together by the word of his power. We're teaching that, that God and the things of God are what we either just work to kind of fit in our already busy schedules. We see that taught a lot, don't we? Well, I've got this going on. I've got that going on. I don't think I can make it on, on this Sunday. And I, Bible study, I, I might have to put that off to Saturday. And like, I, well, I haven't spent any time in God's word. We're teaching. We're, 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 we're teaching. Or we can be teaching. He's our priority. Not because like, we're going to get punished if we don't do these things. But our children are seeing mom and dad want to spend time with the Lord. They want to spend time with the Lord. They, 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 they want to, to, to go gather with the church, not because they're supposed to, because they, they want to be encouraged by and encourage fellow believers in Christ. There's a joy and a desire that, that children are seeing from their parents that creates a security and a stability and a joy and a life. And all of this is coming without words. Building a house Building a family by wisdom. By wisdom. By understanding. By knowledge. That is how the home is established and filled with riches. The riches of a God-fearing family. So I'm going to close this two-part message with this. And we're going to come back to it next week. Let's say we model all of this perfectly. We won't. But let's say that we do. Model every bit of this perfectly. It will not guarantee that our children will develop a, a biblical fear for the Lord. Dad, you could do everything right. Mom, do everything right. But that will not guarantee that your children will love and fear the Lord. Oh, we wish it would. We wish that it would. I have pastor friends who have faithfully walked with the Lord for, for decades, discipled their, their children, modeled everything that we have talked about here today, and their children have, have yet to come to saving faith in Christ. And they're praying every day for them too. 
But this is where we cling to the teachings of Scripture overall. It tells us that we plant and we water. And we keep planting and we keep watering. But it's God who gives the growth. It's God who saves. And when he saves, we praise him. And if he doesn't save, we continue to praise him. Regardless, we continue to model what it looks like to fear the Lord. We continue to set the example. Notice everything that we have talked about here, has nothing, none of it has been from words. It's all about our actions here in part one. Regardless, we continue to model what it looks like to fear the Lord. Because if we don't, all we're building this family on is shifting sand. And it will not last. It won't last. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we close today, we ask for you to strengthen our homes. Create families within this body of believers that are rooted deeper and deeper in your word. Raising up children and teaching them what it means to have a, a healthy fear of you. To see you for who you are. And in turn, they see themselves for who they are. And then and only then they, they see and understand the glorious truths of the gospel. Oh Lord, let, let our homes be little disciple-making factories. And it's to that end we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.